One of the things that stops small business owners from creating marketing content consistently is this feeling of being uninspired, of having no idea what to say in the first place. If you can relate to this, you are in good company. So many of us struggle with knowing what our marketing content should actually be about. But I am here to help. I have come up with 100 prompts that you can use to guide your marketing from your social media posts to your emails to your longer form content. I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100 prompts. That's makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100-P-R-O-M-P-T-S. Welcome back to Making Good, the podcast for small businesses who want to make a big impact. I'm your host, Lauren Tilden, and this is episode 195. I could not be more excited to share my conversation with today's guest, Miriam Shulman. Miriam is a true force of nature, and I had such a blast talking with her about how to build a career in the arts or as a creative. Miriam is the artist and founder of The Inspiration Place, where she helps other artists learn how to profit from their passion or become better artists via online tutorials, coaching, and her podcast, The Inspiration Place. She's also the author of Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. Miriam was so generous with her time and expertise in this interview, and I am so grateful for her candidness during the conversation. Whether you're an artist or another type of creative small business owner, there's so much to learn from this episode. In this conversation, we discuss the role of email marketing and selling art online, the importance of celebrating the people who support you the most in your business, how to get in sync with the future of marketing, the five foundations for any successful business, embracing your inner weirdo, and much more. Here's my conversation with Miriam Shulman. Hey, Miriam, welcome to Making Good. Well, hey there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I just feel like we're going to have so much to chat about. We have a lot of overlap in our in our background, I think. So I am just can't wait to get into it. For folks who may be new to you, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your journey to what you do now. I know you worked in corporate, like I also did, and then art and then teaching. So like, tell us a little bit about that path and what you do now in your business. Okay. Well, I I had wanted to be an artist, but I had swallowed the Kool-Aid that I wouldn't be able to make a living. Mm -hmm. And coming from a a single parent household, my father passed away when I was five and going to college with on student loans, I did not see an option other than what I believed, which is that I wouldn't be able to make a living as an artist. Mm -hmm. So I went to Wall Street. And to make a longer, boring story shorter and interesting, after 9-11 happened, I decided I was not going to go back to that world ever. Mm -hmm. Ever. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't believe that I would make a living as an artist, but I did start painting on the side, selling my portraits. So at first I took a job as a Pilates instructor and at the gym, they were teaching us how to upsell personal training packages. And that's when I had my aha moment. Well, hey there, I can use these same strategies to sell my portraits. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for me. So that was 20 years ago. And so 
you, so tell us about your business now. So do you still sell art or are you primarily focused on the uh, educating? Well, it's shifted gradually over the years. So for 20 years, I've been selling my art. The last few years since the pandemic, I've been focusing more on helping other artists. And I would say about 10 years ago is when I started doing online art classes. So that was about halfway through my journey when I added on the online art class component. And those were not business classes. Those were technique classes like watercolor portraits and art journaling and things like that. So, but what happened was five years... the curve. Yeah. You know, when I, somebody on Etsy had approached me and said, I love your art. Do you teach your art online? And that Mm. was the first time I ever heard of it. But I had been a computer programmer when I was working in corporate. So like my ears perked up and Mm -hmm. I really wanted to learn what this stuff was. Uh, And when I first started doing the online class, Think I really struggled because all the techniques that I had been using up until that point were in-person, guerrilla marketing, relationship building. And I didn't really understand how to translate those skills to the online world. So I did struggle in the beginning. But then once I understood I needed an email list to connect with people and building an email list, that shifted. So not only was I able to sell my online art classes because of the email list, but I was selling more art. So then 2018, I I launched the podcast and that's when people started asking me, hey, could you just show us how to, to sell our art? We want to <laughs> sell our art. So uh, that that's why I started focusing on that a few years ago. Amazing. So it's really what, where the demand was. And then it's, it's fun for me. I like that I'm able to do all these different things and, and shift and change throughout the years. Yeah. Well, to the listener of this podcast, right when we first got on this recording, I had a sense we were going to go a little bit rogue from the question. So (laughs) I'm just going to start rogue because a couple of things that you said kind of just piqued my curiosity to start with. So um, the first thing is about email. And I'm a huge... I love email marketing. It's like my, my love language in the world of marketing. I would love to just hear a little bit more about you said that when you started your email list, that was really the game changer for you being able to sell both the art classes, but also the artwork. What was it that you were doing that you were that was really delivering results for you? I think folks listening are going to wonder, like, how was it that the email is what like made this online sales more possible? I'd love for you to share anything you have there. Okay. All right. So 10 years ago, when I first started teaching online art classes, we still had reach on Instagram. You remember those days? (laughs) Yeah. But even then I thought, oh, all I have to do is post a couple times on Instagram and I'll fill my class up. Wrong. And that was even then. So Mm -hmm. it was like, that's when I realized, okay, wait a minute, you have to build a relationship through email. And the way I like to think about emails, Instagram, all these different things, all this marketing is more like having the analogy of dating. So Instagram is kind of like the singles bar. You you go, you show up there, maybe there's someone cute there, maybe there isn't, but it's just for getting attention. You don't like ask someone to marry you on Instagram, <laughs> right? You need mm-hmm. to like date them for a while. So email marketing, it's kind of like you get to date the person for a while and get to know them. And then the stats 
have completely changed. So when I was writing the book Artpreneur, when I first started writing the book, the average um, Instagram engagement rate was 1%. And then when I went to edit that portion of the book and I was checking on the stats, it actually had dropped, Lauren, to 0.6%. That means Hmm. if you have 2,000 followers on Instagram that only... 12 people are engaging that with you. That was fast math. <laughs> I was about to do that. Yeah. Okay. It, like 12. That, that's okay. That's average. Maybe you have a little better, but then what about the Instagram influencers? You know, the people are saying, I'm going to show you how to build in a really engaged Instagram list, Instagram following. The average influencer only has 1.12%. So again, mm-hmm. out of a thousand people, that's 12 people out of uh, 2,000 people, that's 24 people. Okay. So on email, the average open rate is like 24%. Mm-hmm. 24%. So let's compare that. The average Instagram, you would need 4,000 people to get 24 people to engage with you. And Insta- 4,000 Instagram followers to get 24 people to engage with you versus on email, you only need 100 people mm-hmm. to have 24%, which is 24 people open that email and see it. And here's the big difference. So there's two things I want to point out. One is when you receive an e- if I sent you an email, Lauren, you decide whether you're going to open it. You decide mm-hmm. based on, oh, it's from Miriam. I like Miriam or I like the subject line. That sounds really interesting. I like the Inspiration Place podcast. I want to open it. On Instagram, the algorithm decides if you even see it. Mm-hmm. But for most small businesses, so that's who we're talking to today, it's a lot easier to find 100 email subscribers than it is to find 4,000 Instagram followers. Right. So powerful. That's I I thank you for giving like the numbers illustration because I think that's a really clear way of showing the the ability that email has to really connect us to our audience and the people who have said that they want to hear from us. People who people who follow us on social media, like they want to see our content. That's why they follow. And they still don't, like 95% of the time or more. So that is the power of email is that you know, if someone decides to subscribe, they will receive your email. And then like you say, it's up to them to open it. And then TikTok is even worse. I don't know how much you talk about that, but you can have millions of followers on TikTok and people still don't even know who you are because you Mm -hmm. can follow someone on TikTok and never see their content again. So when you have managed the very important task of getting someone to be excited enough to subscribe to your email list and be part of your email community. What are your strategies for really, you know, building that relationship? Like you say, going through that dating process um, to the point where someone decides to move forward with you and and become a buyer. Well, I think for most small, small business people, small business owners, a lot of them just get it wrong, even from the initial contact. So like, how many times have you gone to an art fair and you like something or you, and maybe you don't like what's there and they'll say, here's my card. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing. We're using the dating analogy. That's the same thing. Now, 
I, I married Lauren. I don't know about you, but that's the same yeah, thing. Is if you if you wanted to date and you went into a bar and you started handing out your phone number to whoever <laughs> it is that you're interested in, mm-hmm. that's not what's going to work. So it's really if you're interested in somebody and you you meet them, you want to get their phone number if you want to date them, right? If you want to follow up, and it's the same thing with emails. And you got to stop handing out your information. You have to take the other person's email address and add it to your list. So then the next question is, well, how do I get them to sign up? And it's so simple. It's just, hey, you know, if it depends what they're selling. So let's say someone's a jewelry owner and I am at their booth. And this just happened actually the other day. I was with my friend and we were looking at um, someone's jewelry and she says, oh, do you have this in blue? I guess because her daughter's favorite color is blue. And, and of course, the jewelry designer is like, no, but here's my card and you can follow me on Instagram. Like how likely do you think she's even going to A, take the time to follow the post. B, um, check it every day until she has something blue. So that's when the jewelry owner could have said to my friend, let me take down your email and I'll make sure that I'll let you know as soon as I have the blue earrings in stock. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so much more powerful. Now you're in control of the conversation and the relationship. (laughs) So smart. And then how do you approach designing your emails to be engaging and to like actually be a conversation instead of just like a constant, you know, we all get those emails that are just like flyers or advertisements instead of like, like you say, dating. How do you approach that? Right. Well, um, that's what I love to talk about. And this is what I talk about in Artpreneur. uh, I call it Matisse's selling secret. So there are two sisters uh, who collected a lot of art. They collected Matisse and Picasso. And at the time of their death, uh, the one who lived the longest at the time of Ed Cohn's death, she had 100 Picassos and 700 artworks by Matisse. 700. So wow. why did Matisse outnumber Picasso seven to one? Because they're both great artists. You can't say one's a great artist, one wasn't a good artist. And what they found was that Matisse wrote her letters. He nurtured the relationship. Or Mm. as we talk about it, you know, he would have been emailing, but back then he was just putting letters in the mail. So what did he put in these letters? Works in progress pictures. Hey, uh, I think you would really like this piece for your collection. You know, he would you know, do some very specific things. And I do recommend that people who have small business not only do the email campaigns that's do their whole list, but actually occasionally do email their best collectors with giving them first dibs. Hey, there's mm-hmm. this piece that I really think you would like. Or, Love you know, that. if you're a photographer, hey, you know, I'm I'm going to be in San Diego. Uh, you know, let's just say it's the... August and I, I'm booking. I'm booking up, you know, f- photography packages now, so that you'll have time to pick out the photos you want for your holiday card. So being the one that takes the lead on that, people don't find that pushy. They find that thoughtful, and that's like a compassionate way to nurture that relationship. Is you're thinking of them and their needs, and you're helping make things easier for them. 
Mm -hmm. by taking the lead on that instead of like, Oh, no one's, no one's calling me. Why aren't they calling me to book a package? Now you can take, you can take control of your own destiny. When you think of your customers that way, you think of it as being compassionate and thoughtful and you're nurturing that relationship. Yeah. And everyone likes to feel like someone has thought of them or like that they're special in some way. So I think that's such a smart way of whether it's like, you know, I think a, another way to apply this might be for your, like if you have a jewelry business or another handmade business, maybe you're like top 5% of buyers, like they become part of a loyalty program or like a, a special club where they get special access, first access, like you say. But anyway, that you can like really celebrate the people who support you the most, I think is only going to be a good thing. People who have bought from us in the past are the most likely to buy again. So I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Um, One of the things that I know we were planning to talk about was how to get in sync with the future of marketing. And I'm wondering what you mean by this, because I think it's possible we just talked about it, but I'd I'd love to hear more about what you think about the future of marketing. Yeah. So this is, we did just talk about it. So a lot of people (laughs) think it's, it's social media. And I got a lot of pushback, Lauren, from the, one of the developmental editors. She's had said, Oh, well, she's in her fifties and I guess she's not focusing on social media because she's old fashioned. And that's when I realized I had to double down and actually build a stronger case about why the future of marketing is email and not social media, which is why we were talking before about the death of the scroll, how when you're on Reels or TikToks or YouTube Shorts, they're all kind of work the same thing. If you've ever been on any of those platforms, you just are encouraged to scroll up before you even finish that video. So you never engage with the actual content. And everyone from Marie Forleo to Ryan Dice, so the king and queen of the digital marketing space, both say that email is really where it's at. And that is the one place you can form a, a container for you and your collector, your patron, what, whatever you call your ideal client in there because you don't have that scroll. They have to, they get to the bottom of the email. There's nowhere else to go. So whereas on all these other platforms, you're always encouraged to scroll up. So therefore you're not necessarily going to engage with the content creator. Mm-hmm. And then I've had clients who've had reels go literally viral, like 47,000 views on a reel, and they barely got even a few more followers on their Instagram and certainly no sales. So th- that is not the case with email marketing. Email marketing has a 40% or ROI. We already talked about how the open rate is so much better, but there's also statistics that backs up that both the time and the money that you're putting into your social media versus email marketing. The email marketing is a better investment. And we say money because if you're paying someone to do your social media, then it's money. If you're not paying someone, then it's your time, which is which is worth more than money as far as I'm concerned because you can always make more money, but you can't make more time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say to someone listening who's like, how can email be the future? It's so old fashioned. It was like, you know, it's been here since like the AOL days, like it predates social media. How, how is it the future if it's just always kind of been here? What would you say to them? 
Well, I mean, Instagram is about to drive off the cliff like Thelma and Louise. They might take the <laughs> they may take the foot off the the gas pedal, but I, I don't see it happening. And Twitter is imploding. Thanks, thanks to Elon Musk. And TikTok could be shut down by the U.S. because of, of China. So, you know, those are your three major social media platforms right there. And they don't look like they have a very rosy future. Mm-hmm. So it's what's old is new again. And I would even say what I've been finding very effective is traditional mailing pieces. So... Again, we'll use a couple of different examples. If you are a photographer, you maybe you want to mail a postcard to your best clients in August, reminding them that it's time to book their fall photography packages if they want to get in for the to make holiday cards. Or if you're a jewelry designer, this is what I did a lot of times when I was selling my art in person. I would send postcards, but I would put them into an envelope so people actually get them and open them. I would send postcards before a show. And I can tell you, Lauren, that people would come to my shows holding on to those postcards, mm. thanking me for sending them something because now that stands out more than ever before. So email and regular mail, these are the pieces that actually still work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that about like direct mail, which is like, you know, the USPS and the post postal mail. I think that's such a interesting thing that I'm starting to see resurfacing a little bit. It's like, I can't think of a more powerful way of standing out because if you think about how much noise there is on social media, like it's almost impossible to stand out even in an inbox. And I look, I'm the biggest email marketing fan there is, but like we do get a lot of emails. So it is still a little bit hard to set yourself apart. It's not impossible, but like it's hard, but how many like email or how many postcards or cards or things in the mail are people getting from your competitors? Zero would be my guess. Like I can't think of the last time I got, there's a couple folks who send me postcards um, who I love them and they're so fun. Um, And that's it. Like I can't think of, I can't think of a jewelry brand who sends me postcards. I can't think of a, you know, I can't think of anyone really aside from one of the folks is a real estate agent, but she sends like really, um, value added postcards and the other one is a professional organizer, but those are the only two people. And I think it's, that's, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's, it's a little bit, might have a little bit more legwork involved. It does have a tiny bit of expense, but talk about setting yourself apart. Oh, 100%. I've used it in several different ways and it, it's always paid for itself. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your book. I know We've talked about it a tiny bit, but I'd love for you to just tell us about it and who it's for. And then if there's anything you want to share about your book marketing process, like what, how have you approached marketing the book? Is there anything we can learn from that? Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about Artpreneur. So there's five foundations that uh, build any successful business, whether we're talking about photography, jewelry, fine art, really even writing. I wouldn't even put coaching in this because these five foundations 
are for any business. Production, what are you producing? Pricing, how are you pricing it at? Prospecting, we already talked about that a lot. How you're finding your customers, how are you nurturing them? Promotion, and then productivity, how you put it all together. Now, what makes this book a little bit different than other business books is that I put such an emphasis on mindset. A lot of the pushback I get from the book is like, we marry him. You didn't talk about talent. What about talent? I was hmm. like, well, here's the truth. Mindset and marketing are going to trump talent every time. Mm-hmm. So is, was Matisse more talented than Picasso? I don't think so, but he sold more to, to these, these Baltimore art collectors because of his marketing. And for us, especially as small business owners, we can very easily sabotage our own marketing if we don't have a strong enough mindset. So mm-hmm. that's why mindset and confidence building is baked in throughout the book to help you uncover those areas where you could be sabotaging yourself. I love that. I could not agree more. Mindset is, is the make or break factor for me, at least. Like everything changed when I started to pay a little bit more attention to what was going on in my head. You mentioned like sabotaging yourself. What are some of the ways that you've seen? small business owners, artists, makers, sabotage themselves when it comes to their mindset. Okay. So let's just like dial back a little bit. So our brains, our minds have evolved for survival, not Mm -hmm. goal achievement, which (laughs) means that anytime we want to do something new, risky, uncomfortable, our brain is going to feel fear. And therefore, it's going to come up with all kinds of reasons why this won't work for us. And that Mm -hmm. is our brain's way of keeping us safe. Our brain cannot tell the difference between leaving the cave and getting eaten by a tiger versus uh, listening (laughs) to Miriam and sending out emails. I don't know, or listening to Lauren and doing whatever it is that you say you're going to do. So we can't tell. So we're going to come up with all kinds of reasons why this won't work for people. Oh, that's bothering people. Oh, I don't know what to say. Any of this sound familiar? You hear hear people say that in your audience? Okay. Or here's the ones. Oh, nobody buys art in my town. Or uh, I've heard this one a few times. Oh, there's Australia doesn't have as many people as the US. It's hard to sell art here. (laughs) <laughs> like, well, there are actually 30 million people, I think, in Australia. So uh, there's all these things that we come up with these stories. Now, here's the thing, Lauren. We don't perceive these as excuses because these stories feel real. They feel real to us. And the smarter you are and the more creative you are, the better you are at coming up with these <laughs> stories. And yeah. then what happens? Either you're going to not do the thing because you feel you're going to indulge in that confusion and overwhelm, or you're going to go into what I call procrastinating mode, where you're yes. going to like, okay, I'm going to research. I'm going to find out all the ways to make this work. So it's impossible for me to fail. But what's going to happen then is when you go into procrastinating mode, you will find conflicting advice. <laughs> and then you still won't know what to do. Then you'll be even more overwhelmed. So then what happens? Well, you'll either do nothing, like we said, because you're so confused, or you're so overwhelmed, you'll still procrastinate because you really don't know what the next step is. Yeah. So I think you captured so well so many of the things that I hear people say and experience. And I've been there too, actually. Like I talk a lot about mindset, not because I, I'm an expert in it. 
for any other reason other than like I've been through it and I've been very afraid of being judged and afraid of putting things out there. I, I, and I know a lot of my listeners are tend to be very perfectionistic. So that is something that can get in your way big time. Do you have any, maybe if I could ask you for one, like, tip for overcoming some of this fear and this some like survival instinct to actually start putting things out into the world. What would be one tip that you would offer? Okay. So I'm going to talk about my client, uh, Margaret. That's not her real name. That's the name okay. I gave her in my book, but she's a real person. So <laughs> when Margaret came to me, she was saying that she, I was asking her about what she's doing and what she feels she needs to do to, to get to where she needs to go. And she admitted to me that she procrastinates a lot. I said, okay, wh- why do you think that is? And she says, oh, it's, it's because I lack confidence. And I said, no, it's, it's the other way around. You lack mm-hmm. confidence because you procrastinate. So the very definition of confidence is self-trust. Self-trust. So every time you don't do what you say you're going to do and you procrastinate, you erode your confidence. So how do you flip that? Every time you do what you say you're going to do, you will increase your confidence. So if you want to override that primitive brain, just making a plan and sticking to it, because you decided ahead of time and you're thinking with your prefrontal cortex, not your primitive brain, every time you make a plan and you stick with it, you will increase your confidence. Most people think their confidence will grow when they get the sale. No, your confidence will grow just by taking the action that you decided to do no matter what the result. Mm-hmm. So good. Just just start. Yeah. You don't have to feel confident to take action. I love that. That's right. There's something that you teach in your book, I know, called the belief triad. And I would love to learn more about that. Okay. I love the belief triad. So the belief triad, there's three parts. And the first two parts we've all heard before. It's, oh, you should, you need to believe in yourself. And Mm -hmm. you need to believe in your art. But what a lot of people don't talk about is you need to believe in your buyer. Mm -hmm. In fact, you need to love your buyer. So how does this look like? Well, I love to talk about the, uh, the, the story I like to illustrate this is the movie Pretty Woman. So where Richard Gere and Julie Roberts, Julie Roberts is a hooker and Richard Gere wants him to be his ladylike companion to go to business, business events. And so he says, here, take my gold card, buy yourself some nice clothes. So she goes to Rodeo Drive, not dressed very nicely. And the salespeople won't wait on her because they don't believe she has the money. Now we all think that we're not being those mean salespeople. But like we said before, how many times are we thinking to ourselves, oh, uh, she's not going to pay that higher price for my photography package. Oh, um, I, I don't think the people in my town have the money for that. I don't think they'll pay for that. We actually are sabotaging ourselves when we don't believe in the buyer. Hmm. So that's why that belief triad is so powerful. So you not only have to believe in the buyer, you have to believe in the buyer even more than they believe 
in themselves. Because Lauren, at the end of the day, when somebody is trying to decide whether or not to spend $200 on a pair of earrings, let's just say, Lauren, that you made the earrings. I'm not trying to decide if Lauren's earrings are worth it. And I'm not trying to decide if Lauren's earrings are worth $200. I'm trying to decide if I, Miriam, is worth spending $200 on. That's the decision that's going through my mind. So if you are thinking doubtful thoughts about me, how am I possibly going to want to buy those earrings if you don't believe in me either? So when you want to sell something, you have to believe in the customer's value. You have to love them because they're already having drama about whether they are worth it, whether they are enough. So we have to stop thinking so much about ourselves. It's not about when somebody's buying something. It's not about whether we're enough. They're thinking, are they enough? Hmm. I love that. We talk about ideal customers so often. And it's I've heard the, con- the concept often that we want to get to know our ideal customers better than they even know themselves, which I agree with. But I've never heard it put the way that you just put it, which is not only do you need to know them better than they know themselves, but you need to believe in them more than they believe yes, in themselves. You have to believe in them and you have to love them. Yeah. I love that. So what is that? What does that look like creating that belief? Is that kind of like a fake it till you make it? Like if you notice yourself being the kind of person who's like, no, no one's going to buy my thing. Like no one's going to pay for it. Blah, 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 blah. It's such a great question, Lauren. So in, in the book, Artpreneur, I actually provide an overcoming objections chart. And the reason I provide that, it's less about trying to get a yes at any cost because I don't, I don't believe in that. It's more about understanding where your buyer is coming from. So like I said before, when they're making a decision, they're trying to decide if they're worth it. If they're feeling uncomfortable about spending money and they're saying something like it's too expensive or that's a lot of money, it's only because they're feeling uncomfortable because they've never spent that kind of money before. So having the compassion for what's going on in their mind and understanding their mind drama really will help you. But the other thing is understanding all this mind drama, you need to clean up your own language and your own thinking so you're not projecting it on your customers. And one of the best ways to do that is to start cleaning up your language. So not using phrase like, I don't have time. Tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth. It's not a priority. Right. I chose not to spend my time doing that. Don't Mm. say, I can't afford it. I don't have the money. That's a very disempowering statement. Instead say, I choose not to invest my money that way. Or I feel Mm. uncomfortable spending my money that way. Or it's not a priority for me at this time. That's closer to the truth. So the more confident you are and the more you can clean up your own mindset, you won't be projecting it onto your customers. If you're getting a lot of, I'll think about it from your customers, it's probably because either A, you gave them too many choices or B, you're an indecisive person and you're thinking doubtful thoughts about them and they're picking up on it. They don't know why, but if you are projecting that uncertainty, they will feel it and they will feel uncomfortable buying from you because we crave certainty. 
We do not like human, human beings do not like uncertainty. That's why the past few years have been, we're so uncomfortable for so many people. So good. There's something that I wanted to ask you about since I first saw it in your, in some of your content. It's the idea of embracing your inner weirdo. I loved this concept immediately and I would like to hear you explain it and how it relates to marketing. How, like, aside from just like, yay, it feels great to be yourself. Like, how does that actually help us in our businesses and our marketing? Okay. So first of all, let's talk about what weird even means. So weird, it's, it's a Scottish word and Macbeth used it in uh, his, what did they say Macbeth? Shakespeare used it in, <laughs> in the play Macbeth to talk about mm-hmm. the weird sisters. And really the origin of that word is, is not strange. It actually meant fate or destiny because the Scott, it's come from the Scottish word weird. Fate, destiny, or even magical. And what happened is that mm. over time, when the supernatural became vilified, the word weird took on that negative connotation that we think of today. So when you are embracing what's weird about you, you are embracing your fate, you are, you are embracing your destiny, you are embracing what makes you magical. Oh my gosh, love. I did not know that etymology of that word. That is amazing. So in, in the book, Arpreneur, I talk about embracing your inner weirdo. And really that's just about finding your signature style. And I give steps for, for doing that, for really d- taking whatever's quirky, different about you and dialing that up to an 11. Hmm. And why is that something that is useful to do in terms of marketing? I think a lot of times folks just, I mean, the instinct is look around what everyone else is doing in terms of marketing and then like replicate that, which is the exact opposite of like trying to embrace your inner weird. So why is it a good marketing move to, to do Because doing what everyone else is doing is just boring. Mm-hmm. There's no way you're going to stand out. And a lot of us, we were t- you were talking before about people want to be perfectionists. And I also... Uh, talk about pe- people wanting to people please. You don't want to turn mm-hmm. anybody off. You have to be willing to have haters if you want lovers. You have to be willing to go to that place because there's no money in the middle. You will not stand out in the middle. You have to go where people understand what are your quirks? What are your values? What makes you different? Lean into it and exaggerate it. Make it even mm-hmm. more so. Go beyond your influences. Amplify those quirks. Stop people pleasing. Share your values. Yeah. Embrace the imperfection. A lot of people, we want to whitewash all that imperfection away. That's the very thing that makes you stand out. Those, it, those quirky things. And another thing that I see a lot of creatives do is when something comes easy for them, they don't value it. You really have mm-hmm. to honor what comes easy for you. Such a good point. And then open yourself up for feedback. Be willing to put it out there. Bring it out into the world. Don't try to hide it away till it's perfect, like Sleeping Beauty. So I like to think about the Disney princess movie, Sleeping Beauty, where the fairies, they take the little baby and they hide her out into the woods. And the next thing you see is she's a fully grown adult. We never see the braces or the pimples <laughs> or the glasses. And a lot of us want to do that with our art and our businesses. We, you know, like, oh, my style isn't fully evolved yet, or my website isn't perfect yet. 
I can't really launch it yet. No, you need to launch it now. Even when it's an adolescent, love your baby now. Take it out into the world before it's perfect. Because mm-hmm. you, you don't even know what you want to change until you get some feedback on it. And then yeah. we already talked about procrastinating learning. People think they, they want to do all the steps. Really what they're trying to do is avoid failure. So love your baby now, even before it's perfect and take it out into the world. And that's the only way you're going to learn and grow and market and be unique and stand out. Mm-hmm. Would you like if when you're looking at your own inner weirdo, like I'm just curious, are there specific traits that you focus on emphasizing for yourself if you'd be willing to share? Yeah, Lauren, that's a, such a good question. So I I talked about how 10 years ago, someone on Etsy said to me, do you sell your... Um, do you teach online art classes? And back then... Uh, you know, I had, I had never heard of it. So I said, Oh, tell me, tell me who else does this. And at the time when I looked around, all the women who I saw doing it were all from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. They, they were all, um, Mormon or Church of the Later Day Saints. So, and, I, and I'm this Jewish girl from New York. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I was like, I, do I have to like do Christmas holiday ornaments? Like I, I was so confused. So when I first started, I made many of these mistakes that I'm talking about. You know, you had said earlier, you know, some of the things that we talk about, what we teach are the things we most need to learn. So it's right. not that I got this all perfect and dialed up, but I do remember 10 years ago being um, very self-conscious that I, of the way I talk, the way I look, that I'm a Jewish girl. And now that I completely own. I own my mm-hmm. own voice. You have to love your voice and own it, especially women and people of marginalized identities who are socialized to play small. You know, women yeah. are always given the message to 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 not make noise, to take up as little room as possible. And if you don't think that's true, this is what the whole diet industry is all about. It's all about telling women to take up less space. Yeah. And if you look, we talked about Disney characters, they keep getting smaller. You know, like mm-hmm. C- Cinderella is, is like plus size compared to Moana. You know, she's like this tiny thing. And what about the men in these, in the Disney characters? They're huge. So boys are given the opposite narratives. They're told to take up room, take up the voice, have a big voice. And women are being told that it's wrong to take up space. People of color, it can be dangerous for them to make a lot of noise. So we have these socialized messages that in addition to our own human conditioning, this own negativity bias, our own survival instinct that we have, these built-in narratives that that we have to protect us, we also have to overcome social conditioning. And in addition, there are there's evidence, especially for people of color and for women, that you see that men and white men in particular make more money than we do, that we have we see evidence that they may be more valuable. So these are certain things that we have to not only overcome in our own minds, but we have to also overcome the social conditioning that we are all a part of. Love that. You said, and I wrote it down when you said it, you said you have to love your own voice. And I think that's... Um, like even taking that super, super literally, I wonder if you relate to this when you first started your podcast and you heard the first two episodes, was that hard for you to listen to? Mm. 
Yeah, I remember very early on when I did an interview for somebody else and I literally thought that she must have sped up my audio. I had no idea I talked that fast. It's like, oh my gosh, like what happened here? I bet now when you listen to yourself, you're like, wow, that was smart. (laughs) Like, You know, I I just said something smart. And I don't know. Tell me if I'm projecting. No, no, that's absolutely true, actually. So what I do now is I do have to listen to my own podcast because I... I don't know about you, Lauren, but to me, it's like an out-of-body experience when I'm doing a podcast and I don't remember what I say. So like, I have to listen to it because like, what did I say there? Uh, but recently what happened is on one of my social media ads, it's a video of me talking and one of the trolls underneath wrote, you have an ugly voice. Now, 10 years ago, I'm I probably would have been very upset by that. Now I just kind of laughed at it. I was like, well, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, really you're like, no, funny. I don't. I hear myself all the time. <laughs> so it's like, I've, I have, found, you know, millions of downloads. How could you, who cares what you think? So yeah. uh, it's like that didn't affect me at all. But at one point it definitely would have. Yeah. And it's just like the putting in the reps of like, put your voice out there enough and you will learn to love your own voice. But you have to, like you say, like, don't wait for the confidence. Just just take action. That's right. It's action first and confidence. I think the last question I want to ask you before we move into the questions we'll wrap up with is something you mentioned about really leaning into your values when it comes to your marketing. I'm huge on this as well. I would just love to hear you talk about like how do values come into play when it comes to what you share, how you run your business, anything you want to kind of say about values, I'd love to hear. Yeah. Okay. So one of my core values is inclusivity. And you can see that from the moment you pick up my book. So Lauren, I don't know about you, but how many books have you picked up where you turn it over? And even like the endorsements are all dudes. Like all of them. Right. And it's like ugh, another bro marketer book. Mm-hmm. So the the thing the something that was very important to me about Artpreneur is that it was inclusive throughout. The endorsements are inclusive. The quotes that begin each chapter are inclusive. The, uh, you know, I have Muslim ceramicists. I have black artists. I have gay artists. I, you know, I made sure that I touched as many different types of people as I could because I wanted people to see themselves in this book because I'm so tired of these books where you pick it up and I can't see myself in it. And therefore I can't really get any value from it. You know, it's hard enough for us to overcome that. Oh, this won't work for me when you don't see a single person that's like you in the book. Mm-hmm. So even even the even the cover art, I did not want my own art on the cover of the book because I wanted people to be able to see themselves in the book. And if I used my art, then it's about me. So mm. from from the first page to the last, this is an inclusive book. And that's what I'm doing with everything from my podcast to my programs. And I've that's something that is a core value for me. Yeah, that's such a great example about how when you're clear on your values, you can just incorporate them into every decision you make. So I love hearing all the ways that you built that into your book and I'm sure your business as well. So great example. Okay, this has been so much fun already. I am going to try to wrap us up on time. So I'm going to transition into the questions that we ask everyone who comes on the show. And I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. The first one is, how do you approach doing good through your small business? 
Well, this is something I just talked about. So it's not just with my book and my marketing, but my team is diverse. My clientele is diverse. If I need to give a scholarship to for diversity, I will. So that is how I those values show up there. Mm -hmm. What is one small business that you admire? Ooh, uh, great question. You know, I wrote down small business because I knew you were going to ask it. Can we go to book recommendation and I'll circle back to that one? Yes, Give me a yes, yes, more time. yes. Okay. So this is a book recommendation. Does it have to, any book recommendation? Any book could, often it's a business book or a business adjacent book, but doesn't have to be. We've had some fiction. Go ahead. Okay. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Jerry Saltz, who wrote Art is Life. Uh, there's some gorgeous takeaways that we had together. So if you want to read the the book, it's Art is Life by Jerry Saltz. Art is Life. Love. Okay. You got that small business owner in mind yet? Okay. All right. So, uh, okay. Just because it's sitting on my desk here is um, I interviewed uh, the owner of, of Hint and she very smartly sent me a six pack of Hint. That's the Hint water. Mm-hmm. And I've literally, spent, you know, it's like a dollar a bottle for this water. I think I've literally spent like thousands of dollars since she's been on my show, but I really do like it. So instead of like getting a snack, I, get, I drink the Hint water. Hint water. So that is one. And I really do like her values as well. Awesome. Uh, Finally, I would love for you to share where folks can connect with you online. It sounds like email is a good place, but any other big ways of becoming part of your world that you want to share as well as if you just want to, where would you suggest that people go check out and possibly pick up a copy of your book? I'd love for you to share that. Okay. Well, if you like what you heard today and you like my voice, (laughs) come find me on the Inspiration Place podcast. So that is wherever you are listening to Making Good, you will find the Inspiration Place. And then if you want to check out Artpreneur, I am giving away the first chapter for free. You can go to shulmanart.com forward slash believe. The first chapter is choose to believe. So yeah, enter your name and email and I will send you chapter one absolutely free. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. We will have that all linked in the show notes. Miriam, this has been so much fun. I thank you for letting me go so off script with all of my questions and just letting me pick your brilliant marketing and art brain. And I've just, I've loved this. I feel like my audience is going to love it. And um, yeah, just such a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Lauren. It's always an honor. Okay. So there you have my conversation with Miriam. So much of what she said resonated with me, particularly her take on procrastination. She is absolutely right. We don't procrastinate necessarily because we lack confidence. We lack confidence because we procrastinate. I love the idea that not only does follow through move us closer to our goals, but it also helps us to strengthen our trust in ourselves. Miriam is just so full of this amazing mindset goodness. Be sure to go check out Miriam's book, Artpreneur. You can find links to her website, the book, as well as everything else mentioned in this episode at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 195. I would love for you to take a screenshot of your podcast player while you're listening to this episode and tag me on social media at Lauren Tilden. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful to have your support. Here are two ways that you can give back to Making Good. First, I would be honored if you leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe and follow. 
And second, if you have a friend that you think would enjoy the podcast, send them the link. Today's episode can be found at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 195. This episode was produced and edited by Corinne Monaco of Just Peachy Illustration. Thank you for being here and for focusing on making a difference with your small business. Talk to you next time.